Picture your earliest memory, the who, what, and where of it. How do you feel when you remember it? Do you have any archival evidence of it? A photograph, a Super 8 home movie, or if you're young enough, a social media post about it? What if you didn't have any of those things? How would you describe the fuzzy images inside your brain to someone else when you had nothing to show them? Which details would you be sure to include? What might you leave out? And how would you feel if an image-generating bot making use of artificial intelligence was able to piece together your memory for you? I'm Heather Landy, and you're listening to The Quartz Obsession. On today's episode, Synthetic Memories. In the Catalonia region of Spain, a local designer has been working with elderly patients at a care home to give them physical visualizations of their earliest memories. I'm Pau Garcia. I'm the founding partner of Domestic Data Streamers, a creative studio based in Barcelona. And I also teach at the Barcelona School of Economics and Elisaba School of Design and Engineering. And my focus is in, in data visualization and artificial, generative artificial intelligence. What the bots are creating are not photographs. They're modern day mementos of a long ago past. And Pau and his colleagues are creating them for a group that's particularly interesting to think about in the realm of recall and memory, elderly people with early stage dementia. Pau, thanks for being here. Yes, it's a pleasure. <laughs> in simplest terms, Tell us about the concept of synthetic memories. Synthetic memories are a way to transform oral memory, words, into images using generative artificial intelligence. Actually, it's something that I'm still discovering so far. Um, so this has been part of our research uh, since uh, February 2022. And it's the process where you transform an oral memory uh, into an image using, in this case, uh, specifically generative artificial intelligence. How did you get started on this project? I think I, I have to go back almost 10 years. Um, uh, we were doing this collaboration in Greece uh, in 2015. And when you say we, you mean your design studio? Yeah, domestic data streamers uh, within the studio. Um, it was. In, during the one of the biggest refugee crises in Europe and because the Syrian war and over 5 million people moved over Europe and we were assisting uh, to different organizations that were helping host families and refugee families in, in Athens. And I remember in one of the dinners we, have, we were having with one of these families, a, a grandma, where she was explaining me, well, I'm not sad about myself, about becoming a refugee. What, what really worries me is that my grandkids will be refugees for a very long time uh, because they have not only lost their home, but they have lost part of their heritage, their memories. And I said, well, yeah, of course, but how so? And, and, and she told me, well, uh, to start all our photo albums, all the memories, all the documentation and the visual memories that we have about our past are, are gone, are totally gone. And this is something that we could not move with us because of course the weight and the size of all this documentation is so big. So we had to create and select which memories we wanted to save. And fast forward 10 years afterwards, we, we have this amazing technology that can actually transform text into image, and in this case, stories into images. And we said, well, what if we come back to that problem that we faced, this lost memory from this migrant community, and we start working with that 
and and then we started doing some like very general tests and and the results were really really amazing on the people how long did it take you when the image generators like dolly started to come out did, did you immediately think back to that problem that you faced helping people sort of reconstitute their memories uh in greece or did it take you a while to make that connection we were lucky because we were some of the beta users of these tools and we had like we started to explore like all the potential uses of them i think it came as a kind of coincidence like we were having this discussion with some friends and i had this this friend who had lost uh, her father long ago uh, when she was a kid and and she actually asked us to recreate an image of her father and and her playing and then when we did that i saw her face i said wow like this is so powerful like this have such a i don't know an impact on on people because at the end is externalizing a memory that we only have in our mind and when we are able to with our own voice transform that into an image that can be seen by other people than ourselves uh, it transforms into another thing it's like memory externalization talk about that process so you you're actually describing to a bot what it is that you have in your mind or the person who's trying to get an image of their memory Yes. Um so how we have developed it right now it's a methodology, right? It's an interview methodology where we start with what is your first memory of your life? And then people recall their first memory. That is also already an interesting uh, part of the research we're doing. And through that um normally we create a scene, right? We ask, okay, it was during the day, it was during the night, uh, how was the room or how was the landscape? Uh, there were more people, how they were dressed. Right. And through all these uh, this description, we start to generate a prompt, and this prompt is later used to generate an image. Then we expose this image, we show this image to the interviewee, and then there is a fine tuning. So it tends to be not like perfect from the beginning. It tends to be okay. No, um, actually, that person was on the right, and I remember this table was a bit taller. And then we start to refine like the image until. In a normally five to ten minutes, we get a final image that they say, "Wow, it was it!" And you can see the click on them when they see the memory as yes, they remember it. And how did you come to start using this process with the elderly, with people suffering from dementia? So, the first community, of course, was the migrant community because we were already working with them, and afterwards. We had like these small gigs in Barcelona where we invited uh, gigs from all over the city to come over and and explain their their different ideas and so on. And one of the people that came to the studio was a social worker, was a person that was actually working in a nursing home. And he told us, "Well, um, I would love to actually integrate this technology with the the people that I work with. And normally these people are people with dementia, with like different stages of dementia. So I would love to." to try it and then we said well okay let's let's start to experiment and and see what what comes up with it and it started as a very kind of naive experiment but when the people from the nursing home saw their effects and the results they were like really okay we should actually research on that and that's when we started work with different experts on neuropsychology and how to actually integrate like a deeper way, line of research within it so first of all They are speaking to you not in English but in Catalan, which the most of the image generators that I'm aware of, anyway, the prompts are primarily English. So uh, already you're having to do some manipulation of of the memory that people are telling to you orally. Tell us about that step. 
Uh, of course. So part of the work we are doing is in, in fine-tuning the algorithms. For example, this is something that has happened in Brazil uh, a month ago. We were in Bon Retiro in a neighborhood in, in Sao Paulo. And we had the same problem, the problem of translation, how you go from one language, then translate it to a scene and then translate that scene to the language of the algorithm that is basically a specific kind of English, right? So we are trying to find shortcuts to work with the algorithm to actually show what that person wants to actually visualize. When you say a specific kind of English, what, what do you mean by that? Are, are, the, are the bots picky about what kind of English they'll respond to? Yes, yes, of course. So it's very biased towards American English uh, first, and then kind of neutralized, right? So there are not a lot of nuances in the English. And for example, it's easier to create an image if you retrain it with images from that same space or architecture. And then you say, okay, within that realm of images, we want something similar, but with that specific scene. And, and people in it and colors and so on. Right? So we are trying to mix both what is the language and the definition of the space with images that can contextualize the algorithms to actually create something that is more accurate. Even though I have to tell that a big part or a feature of synthetic memories is not to create images that can be uh, misunderstood as, as photographies. Um, generative artificial intelligence and the early tools that we were using are very good at this because they have a lot of glitches. And what we what is normally understood as glitches, we, we say that these are features because are things that looks a bit blurry, right? Um, but for us, this is perfect because it, tr it truly shows that this is not a photography. This is a, what we call a, a memory vector, something that helps you recover or anchor that memory in a way that is faster, that can explain the situation and so on. But it's not super specific on certain parts that you don't remember very well. Memory anchor, pal, what, is, what do you mean by that? Um, memory anchor is how we define uh, an artifact uh, that can be an image, a smell. It can be even uh, a dish that we love that somehow brings us to that specific moment and time that we want to remember. Right? So we are using it as an interface between ourselves and the memory that we have. Probably you have had in your past that moment that you wanted to recall a memory, but you were not able to recall it. And then someone say that word, that actually unlock it. That's exactly the same thing and how some of these images work. So give us an example, some, a live example of some of the patients that you've worked with. What kinds of things were they remembering and telling you about? And, and then what kind of image would get generated as a result? So I always tell the story about, of Maria because I, I think it was one of the most impactful at the beginning. Uh, she's a, a, an 86-year um, woman. Uh, from Catalonia, from Barcelona, and, and when I asked her what was her first memory, she told me that her first memory was of, of her father, and she remembers being in a balcony. And the curious thing is that this balcony was not of hers of her, or her family. This balcony was rented by her mom because it was from another family that lived in front of the prison of Barcelona, and the prison of Barcelona was in the city center. 
uh, it's a very particular prison. And, and her father, because he was a Republican during the dictatorship, he was a political prisoner. So the only way she could see him was through the window of the prison and through that balcony that was in front of the prison. And of course, that was a, a memory that was not was never photographed. It, there was no visual documentation about that, even though she remembers very well about how was the balcony, uh, the metal, like the different parts of the balcony, the architecture of the space. So through that description, we started to create not only an image, but in this case, we created even a video where you could see her across the street and see also her father. Of course, when we created that image and, and she saw it, it was uh, very impactful like for her to see something that was within her memory now transformed into something that could actually show to her grandkids. I imagine it must bring tears to people's eyes. I have to say that this project, from all the projects we have been doing in the last 10 years, this project is the one that where I have seen more people crying. <laughs> but more, mo- most of the crying is, cry- is like for joy. It's not like <laughs> really sadness. You specified that these are not photographs, and you've talked about some of the ethical issues. Do these patients who are elderly, suffering from dementia, do they truly understand what is going on here, what it is that's being created, and can they grasp the idea that this is not, in fact, a photograph from a family album? So uh, during the first, the early part of our work with dementia patients, um, part of the work was actually in understanding to which patients we could work with. With the psychologists, we determined that we could only work with patients on early stages of dementia uh, because they were like really aware of what was going on. Right. Afterwards, it was like much more complex to explain the whole thing. And of course, when I talk about understanding what is going on, it's not about understanding the what is going on behind the algorithms. Because even a lot of people, like people even in OpenAI, they don't know how some of these models work. But explaining what is going to happen and from where these images come from, and which is like the natural process for this to come into an image from their voice, this is something that we explain. And this is part of, of the limitations of with whom we can work with. Yeah. And again, I have to say that this is a very new and experimental technology is something that is coming up and it still needs to be explored. There is like a lot of ethical implications that we should actually balance about the identity distortion or or the potential misuse in rewriting even historical events. That this is something that has happened in the past even without artificial intelligence. Like we have seen a lot of cases on that. But now it's easier than ever. Right. So um, I think talking about synthetic memories is also understanding which is our relationship with memory, with collective and individual memory. Yeah. So with the patients that you're working with at the nursing home, aside from the the crying, the shock or the gratitude of, of seeing these images from their childhood, what kind of effect do you think it's actually having on their brains, on their health? What kinds of outcomes are you actually seeing from this project? So far, the, the implications has been, of course, a, a lot of engagement within the patients and the caregivers in the center. But one of the conversations we had with one of the caregivers, uh, she told us, well, um, I have sometimes a lot of problems when I have to, for example, give them medication and they don't remember who I am. And she said, well, with um, synthetic memories, what I show is the pictures that we did together. And 
they see that as a password. Uh, they see that the synthetic memory as a way of, hey, I know this. Uh, we did it together. And this like kind of a, a memory anchor is like a, an, enhance, an enhancement of cognitive abilities for like a short period of time. Right? So it's a way to build trust. Um, and of course, this is not only good for, for the, the patients. This is also very good for the caregivers because for them is also a tool to work in a more human uh, way with the patients. Uh, otherwise, it's a bit complex sometimes. So you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, ha have you seen any negative effects? I mean, even uh, the language issue alone, you talked about uh, the bias that these um, bots have toward English and a very specific kind of English. Um, I mean, that signals to me not only that people are going to need to learn the, the best ways to prompt these bots, but also that great swaths of humanity might get left behind in all of this. Um, of course. How much do you worry about that? Well, the, today there, there is a lot of people talking about uh, that artificial intelligence is the, like the new wave of colonialism, right? And they say, well, at the end is uh, something that is applied globally, but still is using the data of a certain part of the world. So it have the views of a certain part of the world. And in this case, it's the Western, specifically uh, the United States in most of the algorithms, even though we have been seeing pop up some other algorithms that can rebias themselves towards all, all other audiences. And I think that's probably what what the future should look like with a lot of different models and not one major model, right? So. For me, for example, OpenAI, even though they have done like an epic work in advancing the field, like trying to create models that are not biased, for me, this is like kind of a big lie because they will be always biased, right? So it's more about creating different models, biased towards different directions and understanding and being transparent with the, this bias and understanding that, well, this model is biased towards a Western American perspective of the world. Right? If you want to use it, understand that this is the bias, right? And, and this will have like different qualities. For probably it will be very useful for certain things like uh, negotiating <laughs> certain uh, aspects of your life. But then if you have, for example, let's say a South African algorithm, right? With the perspective of, so of someone that have lived through an apartheid, uh, what will that algorithm look like? How it will react to certain things, decisions, questions. So this somehow makes our perspective and our space for critical thinking like much more limited. And I think a, a big part of the work that we have as designers and people working on the field of communication is to create new interfaces that have in mind these ideas, like how we show the biases, how we show that there is not one truth in certain specific topics, but there are various truths, right? Yeah, that's, that is really fascinating. How much through this process have you learned about the brain and how it works. Do you feel like you're a neurology expert now or? Look, I, I surround myself with the best experts so I don't have to go through <laughs> like six years of literature on, on neuropsychology. Uh, but of course, I have learned a lot in the last two years, even though I, I always prefer to work with experts on the field because I'm an expert on, on design, data and communication. And then I think it's part of the work that we are doing. It needs to be done multidisciplinarily and not only multidisciplinarily, but from like different global perspectives. It's very different to understand memory um, and the um, 
cosmology of memory from a Brazilian perspective than from a Spanish perspective uh, than from a Chinese perspective, right? Um, how we relate to memory and the power it has into our life and the memory of our ancestors is totally different. There is a big part of the work that we are doing with synthetic memories that is actually not relying one specific voice, but actually opening the research to be transparent and invite more people and more researchers to be part of it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, how replicable is a project like this? Could you know, staff at a nursing home anywhere you know, do something so, similar? So for now, what we are doing is a series of toolkits. We have one toolkit that is kind of a pop-up chapter. So we go and for two weeks, we train a local team of people to reproduce synthetic memories. And then part of the memories can be exhibited in the museum or in a nursing home or like in different spaces. And then of course they can keep on using that technology and, and the tools that we have at it. And we don't want to make it like totally open online because of course there are a lot of ethical limitations that we want actually to explain, like in person, to like see that actually the methodology will be followed as we have developed, right? So we have like safe guardrails in the way we we further develop this research. And also, so we can collect information from all these different chapters and cross it together to learn from it. What, what are some of those safeguards that are important to put in? So for me, one of the most important things is like the relationship with the interviews. So what we were talking before, um, understanding that you cannot use synthetic memories with uh, someone that have an advanced state of Alzheimer. This is a very important. Um, but not only that, um, understanding that this should not be used um, as a political weapon, for example. So um, this, imagine that instead of talking about subjective memory, you start talking about memory of a community, right? And then you start to explain a story that is remembered in a specific way for that community. But even though it's documented that it didn't happen, the strength that this could have as a community memory is like, like really, really big. Um, so one of the cases that we show is a case of a, of a series of activist groups in Italy um, that actually recalled a memory from their past in total different way as it happened. And it was just because they how they explained to each other the situation that happened, right? So we explained that this can happen in the future. And of course, these tools could be used in a wrong way if we don't understand like this psychological community uh, limitations that we have. And we know that memories aren't always so very reliable. So I think about uh, police lineups and you know people picking the wrong person who committed a crime. I suppose when you're dealing with an elderly person with dementia, thinking back to their childhood, on the face of it, it seems like there's not too much risk if they somehow mis misremember or misplace certain details. But in other contexts, for example, one of the projects we are doing right now is with a, a civil rights organization, Iridia, and that they are working on a legal case um, for Catalan people that were tortured during the dictatorship in a police station that is still operative here in Barcelona. And it's part of the Spanish police, so it's a like, different legislation. Right? So no journalists have been able to enter to these spaces, to these rooms. So what we are doing is interviewing people that were tortured there to actually explain the architecture of the space. So afterwards, in the, during the jury and during the trial, they can actually explain specifically with images how they remember the space. And we are not going specifically to the description of people, but yes, about the space. And just being able to explain a space and that you were there, this, this can be a kind of a proof 
that you actually were there during certain moments uh, in history, right? So um, it has like a lot of potential implications. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that synthetic memories, if I were to come to your design studio and, and you were to make for me images based on my memories, do you think that synthetic memories have archival value? Do they belong in my box where I keep old journals from when I was a kid or, you know, postcards that uh, people sent me when I was a teenager, you know, maybe things that perhaps my daughter would enjoy looking through someday. Do synthetic memories have the same kind of archival value as old letters and other things that we might collect as mementos of our past? So from our experiences that we have had, this is in the first nursing home, and from the 12 people we were working with, uh, six of them asked us to print it as a photography because they wanted to frame it, right? So I think that that itself speaks about that idea of the materialization of the memory and how you want to keep it, even give it as a present to some of your family. And then, so next, next April, we will open a, a public office of memory reconstruction here in Barcelona with the City Hall. And one of the interesting parts of the project is also about creating an archive of the city. So it's about talking about memories of the city, of places that have not been documented. And the city itself has changed a lot during the last hundred years. So we will be able to recreate parts of the city that ha that we have no images about. Right. So uh, even for the city hall, in this case, have a, a documentary value. How is there anything else about synthetic memory that I didn't ask you about that you think is important for people to know? I, I wanted to point out the importance of understanding uh, artificial intelligence and, and focusing on artificial intelligence form as a tool to, to reconnect. And, and I think there is this quote from Montserrat Roig, an amazing Catalan uh, writer from the 70s, and, and she said, if there is an act of love, that is to remember. And I really think that's the way I, I want to tackle this very complex technology system as a way to expand the way we connect with each other and the way we can understand our own past. It's so counterintuitive to the way most people think of modern technology as isolating us and creating our own worlds for us that we don't even need to share with other people now. That is right. I think, again, there is this say that uh, says artists and designers has the capacity to create at the same speed that the world has the capacity to destroy. <laughs> and I think this is part of the, of the, the work we should do to, to find different ways to hack how like certain technologies are making us go or balance ourselves towards certain uh, control and optimization and production. And, and see which are the cracks where we can actually work to, to expand this technology to be more like an enhancer of, of human experience. Do you remember your first memory? <laughs> um, my first memory was uh, an excursion with my parents to the mountains when I was uh, five, six years old with my brother and sister. Too, and we kind of the car get trapped into the, into the mood of the mountain. And I was dressed up as Superman at that point. <laughs> so I had to get over the car to ask for help dressed as Superman. 
we don't have an image of that, but I remember all my family laughing about it for a very long time. So again, I don't know if that's my memory of this is something that they have loved of me for the last 10, 20, 30 years already. <laughs> I could actually see a mid-journey or a dolly doing a very good job creating an image <laughs> of a little boy in his Superman outfit on top of a car. <laughs> have you tried creating it? No, but I will. I will. <laughs> Pow, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about your work or get in touch if they're interested in take, being part of the project you were talking about? We are publishing most, mo, mo, most of the results in our website, domesticstreamers.com. If anyone is interested, that's the place to, to reach out. Thank you so much for explaining all of this to us. My mind is blown. Thank you so much for this time. Special thanks to Pau Garcia of Domestic Data Streamers. This episode was produced and edited by Chad Shanai and engineered by Juan Palacios and Angel Fajardo, with additional support from executive editor Susan Hausen and head of video Garth Bardsley. Our theme music is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugira. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you're listening. Tell your friends about us. Know someone who likes to ruminate on the past? Send them this episode. Then head to qz.com forward slash obsession to sign up for Quartz's weekly obsession email and browse hundreds of interesting backstories. I'm Heather Landy. Thanks for listening.